Hi, my name is Trevor, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's a good day for our church to celebrate because today's message officially wraps up our journey through Mark's gospel. It's been such an incredible journey for me where I finished this series not only with a clearer vision of Jesus, but also a far more captivating one. And I sure hope that that's true for you too. In fact, if you've been joining us in this podcast series, we would sure love to hear from you and to hear how looking at the life of Jesus has impacted you. If you'd be willing to shoot us a quick email right now as this message begins, you can send it to office at olivebranchcf.org. Again, that's office at olivebranchcf.org. Um, it's taken us an awful long time. We're over 50 weeks into this series. And today, we kind of give the same title that we did last week, where last week we talked about Mark's cutting room floor. Remember, a cutting room floor in the film industry back a long time ago before things were digitized is where they'd trim different scenes and begin to splice them together. And in that cutting room, along the floor would be all of the scenes of, of information or, or scenes or parts of the plot that didn't necessarily make it into the final version. So we talked about the end of Mark's gospel and his cutting room floor, the added ending in Mark 16. But today we kind of talk about our own as a church, things maybe that we didn't develop together, things or themes that I'm hoping that you didn't miss as we walked through Mark's gospel, and even moments that were really impactful, I think for me, but for the life of our church. And so we'll take the time to look through that cutting room floor as we review uh, Mark's gospel together. And so the way that we will end this series is by going back to the beginning. It's what was just read to you. It's how Mark begins. It's in Latin. It's referred to as an insipit. You see, writing was, was unique back in ancient times, different than our time, because paper was a precious commodity. To get papyrus from the banks of this river, uh, the Nile, if you went to get papyrus, it was a precious commodity and a rare thing. And so every page mattered. Every sentence mattered. Every word mattered. So in ancient times, people used this thing called an insipit. And you might remember this from 50-some weeks ago. That This is how Mark began, utilizing this writing style. The, the word, it, it simply means it begins. It's a one-sentence summary of the message of an author's entire writing. And that's what you have here in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Seems like a simple thing to us, but there's depth and weight here. And Mark is telling us what the story is all about. In fact, Mark is introducing to us three different storylines that he's telling you from the onset will be developed throughout his gospel, and that those three storylines will intersect and crescendo in the climax of the story, which was the cross and an empty tomb. And so Mark begins in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, here's the three themes that he introduces to us that we will unpack and just talk about as we spend some time in Scripture again this morning. The beginning, the beginning, think of this. The beginning is taking ancient readers' minds back to the Garden of Eden. That's what he's referencing. He's referencing creation that's been lost and a cross that ends, the story ends with a cross and an empty tomb where creation is restored. Throughout this gospel, it's true we've seen it, we follow the narrative of an eternal story. That's what Mark is telling you. In the beginning, in fact, in the Greek Septuagint, the Old Testament Greek translation, it begins, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, with this very same, same exact Greek wording that's found here in Mark chapter 1. In the beginning 
of this gospel of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He's taking the minds of his Greek readers back to the beginning to tell you that this is an eternal story. Not just an eternal story, but it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Mashiach. It's the promised Messiah, the, the Savior, the anointed one. He's taking your mind to Israel's history. This is not just an eternal story. He's telling you that this is an anticipated story, that the people of Israel have long anticipated the fulfillment of what the prophets have long foretold, that one day there would be a rescuer who would come from heaven to deliver us. It's an eternal story, an anticipated story, but it's also a story about a king and a kingdom. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. The term son of God is something that Caesar Augustus himself had taken for himself. The coins that rattled in their pockets had Caesar's head on it and that very statement, the son of God. The emperor was claiming to be a deity among them. And when Jesus takes, or when now Mark applies that title to Jesus, we think of it only as a statement of deity, but in the first century, people would realize because of the coins clinging around in their pocket and because of inscriptions all over the place of their God, Caesar the God, the Son of God among us, they're realizing that what's being said here is more than just a claim to deity. It's a claim that you have a king and a kingdom that's going to be displayed before you. You see, Mark is telling us here an eternal story, an anticipated story, and a story about a king and his kingdom. And the way that we'll wrap this up is by looking at those parallel narratives that are running throughout Mark's gospel. So first, the eternal story. The eternal story. Remember, Eden, their minds went back to Eden. In the beginning, the same exact wording being used. It's in chapter one. I mean, think about it. When Jesus is baptized and comes out of the water, it tells you that the Spirit of God hovered there in place, descending upon him like a dove. And that everyone sees this and experiences it, that would have take minds, taken minds back to Eden. Because your Bible tells you that in the beginning, as God created, remember that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the earth. And in ancient translations that people would have had access to, it even gives the descriptor that it flapped its wings, that the Spirit moved over the waters as if it was a bird flapping its wings, moving across creation. But that's some of the terms that are used. So there's imagery that all throughout Mark's gospel is taking people's minds back to Egypt. I'm sorry, back, excuse me, to Eden. But by the end of the gospel, it's no longer just that you're thinking of an ancient garden in Eden where one man took a fall and led that led to a tree that led to his death when mankind reached up to grab what was God's and God's alone, the right to define right from wrong, good from evil. When they took that authority, sin entered creation and corrupted it. But by the end of our story, through the Gospel of Mark, you find another garden. You see a future garden where Jesus in Gethsemane, one man who takes a stand and goes to a tree that doesn't lead to death for creation, but leads to life for it. And then you find Jesus emerging from a garden tomb. You see, Mark over and over again makes connections to creation past, to what was lost and ruined in order to point out to you what is being redeemed, restored, and recreated in Jesus. And I've loved that all throughout the gospel, we've taken the time to recognize when Mark is having us step back and look at the life of Jesus and see it in light of eternity. I mean, haven't you loved that 
that we're seeing Jesus throughout the story with his amazing power, which is exactly what we'd expect when heaven's promise finally arrived, an eternal promise. We would expect his amazing power. And we witnessed it right from the beginning, didn't we? Restoring a leper back to full health and into a community in chapter one. It's healing a man with a withered hand. It's calming storms over the Sea of Galilee with just a word. It's rescuing a young man who's plagued by demons, raising a little girl to life. The list goes on and on in Mark's gospel. I've loved seeing Jesus' amazing power, but I have to tell you, I've also so loved seeing something that does surprise us, and that's Jesus' gentle compassion. His power is what we anticipated, what we assumed would be a part of the story, right? But his compassion is something at times that was so striking. I mean, Jesus would do the the unthinkable and reaching out a hand in the first chapter to touch a leper. But then as scandalous as it was for him to touch a leper, it was even more scandalous in the culture for him to call a tax collector to be one of his disciples. And yet Jesus shows no hesitation in either of those situations. Don't you love that one of the trademarks of Jesus' ministry, it became clear that he would pursue people that no one else wanted, even choosing those who are most hated or most ostracized by the community. Haven't you loved that we've seen that Jesus treats failures as if they've never failed? That he treats them as if it never happened. That he willingly associates himself with failures. Jesus, it's... it's, me thinking back about different moments this week, his compassion that so gripped my heart as we made our way through Mark's gospel. It's, it's that story where that woman comes having touched Jesus after having spent everything she had, not just her finances, but every bit of hope she had that she could be healed and whole again. But now she's come to Jesus and touched him and she knew instantly she was healed, but she's trembling on her knees before him. And it's Jesus looking at her with eyes of compassion as he lifts her up and tenderly says, my daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and and be free of your affliction. These gentle, tender moments where there's a crowd of people and yet Jesus looks away from the crowd. It's Bartimaeus coming, the blind man squawking and crying out for mercy. And Jesus, it says, stood still. The crowd around him had threatened the poor guy. Remember, they told him, no, no, be quiet, stop it, knock it off. And and yet Jesus stood still and gave this man his attention. And as stunning as it was in, in the Old Testament for Joshua in that very same city of Jericho, for Joshua to pray that the sun would stand still, and somehow it did, we talked about this. It really is even more stunning that the God who created heaven and earth had come to the earth and would pause to give his attention and affection and care and healing to someone that everybody else had discarded and pushed to the fringe of society. It was when they led a man who was deaf and mute to Jesus and Jesus took him by the hand, taking him away from the crowds Ascribing worth and dignity to him, not allowing him to be some circus sideshow in that moment. He cared for him, and the the Gospel of Mark tells us that he sighed deeply. Do you remember this? He looked at him, sighed deeply before healing him. It's an amazing moment in Mark chapter 7. 
this emotion-filled word of Jesus sighing deeply. It's his passionate appeal to his father to intervene. This isn't Jesus being annoyed by this man's infirmity. This wasn't disappointment with this man. This is Jesus moved with compassion. He was hurting because this man hurt. And Jesus entered his pain personally. But there was even more, I would assume, in that sigh. Believe that Jesus, within that sigh and groan that that Jesus had in this moment, a realization and reminder of what has happened to the perfect place that he's created. A realization of how tragic it is that those who are made in God's image are now riddled with sin, sickness, and death. This moment provides a momentary view of Jesus' compassionate response to the pain and sorrow that sin brought into the world. And I believe in moments like this, Jesus not only saw the misery and pain of a person in front of him, but he remembered the glory and perfection that creation had fallen from. And I believe even in moments like this, he felt for a moment the reality, the looming reality of what it would cost him to purchase it back, to make it right again. As we said many times, the shadow of the cross would be cast over those moments for Jesus. But it's a beautiful moment full of compassion where Jesus looks to heaven and sighs deeply. He seemed to feel in that moment the frustration of this man who had always been muffled. He felt the sting of the constant exclusion that this deaf man had experienced. It hit him, the uncomfortable and isolating feeling that you're perpetually an outsider each day, each human interaction, each conversation reminded you of it as you lived in this silent world. The stories included in Mark's gospel to serve as a reminder of something so important for those who are hurting, and that's that Jesus hurts with us because he cared so compassionately for people. And that's what we saw again and again. You see, the incarnation, it's the mystery that sets Christianity aside from every other religion. It's the belief that God took on flesh. It it just means to put skin on, that we believe that God left heaven to walk among us, to experience the things that we experience, to suffer as we suffer. Only Christianity has a God who's loving enough to become one of us and then to suffer and die for us. The incarnation was heaven's answer to the world's brokenness. While every other religion is trying to get a distant God to notice you, instead you find Jesus walking the streets among the humble and the poor and the broken and the weary. God came so near, he suffers with you. And he suffered for you. Now think about this though. Jesus didn't just incarnate once, did he? It's not just that he left heaven to take on skin one time. It's something Jesus did again and again with each of these encounters that we followed throughout Mark's gospel. Think of how he lived and interacted with humanity before he'd respond with words. You could see and read on the page the emotion that hit him first as he stepped into their skin and felt what it was like to be them. He incarnated again when he'd sigh deeply feeling what they felt. He entered their life experience when he groaned, when it says that he had pity on them or was moved with compassion when he wept with those who suffered. And I think this is what we are called to do too. 
Remember, incarnation is not just something Jesus did once or even more than once as he interacted within creation with human beings. It's what scripture tells us we ought to do in Philippians. It says, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus also be in you. And in that passage, it's talking about incarnation. You see, incarnation is not just something God did. It's something he continues to do when you and I choose to care enough for people to put skin on God again by entering their life experience. Letting God live and love through us by caring for people like Jesus did. Which means that we ought to walk away from interaction with other people and not really have to fully wonder, I wonder what it's like to be you. I wonder what it's like to live in your skin or to walk in your shoes because we ought to be willing to experience, even if it's just a taste, a taste of their reality each time we interact with them. And they, other people, ought to walk away from interaction with us as followers of Jesus, no longer, no longer wondering, what would it be like if Jesus were here with me right now? Because what they experience by having you or me sit with them provides a taste of what that might look like. Because we are meant to do what Jesus did, to put skin on God and to let God live again through us by his spirit, by choosing to interact with humanity by putting their skin on too, by feeling other people's experience. You see, this eternal story, story that we found Mark developing for us was amazing because it displays God among us in amazing power, but with incredible compassion and simultaneously with shocking humanity. This might be even more surprising or, or, or something that we've maybe just been captivated by even more than his compassion is just Jesus' humanity. He's fully God, limitless, and yet becoming completely a man means somehow mysteriously becoming limited. We found him sleeping on a boat. We find him sharing meals with friends. We find him saying in Mark's gospel that there are things that he didn't know. And when Jesus honored the limitations that he had as a man, it left a trail of disappointed people in his wake. This is one of the lessons that was huge for me as we walked through Mark's gospel. Is that you remember the story early in the gospel where his disciples go to find Jesus and they go and tell him when they find him off praying alone, they say the whole village is looking for you and they've brought their sick. They've brought the people who need to be touched and healed and made whole. And you remember that Jesus said that we're departing. Jesus told them we're going to another village. That his time away with the Father had given him instruction, had made clear his calling, and so he moved forward to another place. And when he did that, it left a trail of disappointed and frustrated people in his wake. When he said, let's go, he was saying no to real people and real needs. But Jesus somehow seemed okay with that. He lived out, rather than under the pressure of his potential, he just chose to live out his actual calling. And yet somehow, at the end of his life, he says quite triumphantly that I've completed, accomplished all the things my father has given me to do. And yet Jesus didn't come to the Americas. He didn't travel to Europe. There were still people, even in those villages, who were yet to be healed or touched. And yet he was confident that he had done all that the Father had given him to do. It's an amazing freeing truth that you don't have to live under potential. That you get to live out your calling. That you and I might leave behind us at times some frustrated or disappointed people because we haven't met every need that they had or desired for us to meet. And saying no is not often looked at 
as a very godly attribute. It's viewed as selfish or, or someone making a decision only based on themselves to say no. But Jesus is someone who did it. He recognized and yielded to the call of God and even his own limits. That he knew he couldn't do everything all at once. Jesus' highest priority was never for him to avoid conflict or confrontation. His highest priority was to do the will of the Father, even if that created confrontation. I think that there's this really freeing truth hidden in this, that opportunity does not equate responsibility for us. When we see needs around us, because it didn't even for Jesus. You see, my friend, you and I have limits too, and it's a really timely thing for me, even this week, reading in a book uh, by author Paul David Tripp, he commented on the irony when it comes to our limits. I'll quote it to you. I just saw it this week, and it was such great timing for my own life. But he says, our limits and weaknesses are not in the way of what God can do through us, but our denial of limits and our delusions of independent strength are are in the way of what God is capable of doing through us. I mean, I've loved the eternal story that Mark opens up for us, pointing us back to Eden, but then to a future paradise by looking at this amazing character, Jesus. God among us with amazing power, compelling compassion, and at the same time, this humanity there that was present, that we could see and touch as we walked through the gospel with him. This humanity that was even touched by the things that, that touch us, that strike us. You see, it's more shocking than probably anything else we find in Mark's gospel. But what we find in the Garden of Gethsemane is probably the most shocking thing that we find in all of Mark's gospel. Because Gethsemane is the greatest depiction and reminder of Jesus' humanity that we find anywhere in Scripture. And early in Mark's gospel, it's flashes of Jesus' deity bursting through his humanity. But by the time we reach the gospel's end, we find the one that we had begun to see as God among us is now soaking the paths of Gethsemane in tears. It's no longer the shock or surprise of his deity that caused us to turn our heads. Instead, it was the frailness of Jesus' humanity that made us gaze in wonder. And if you felt frustrated or questioned God's connections to your feelings or pressures or pains, then hear me remind you today, let me say to you, please, that our perception of God, of how he thinks, of what he feels, dramatically changes because Jesus entered that garden, because Jesus suffered in Gethsemane, because we find Jesus on the floors of Gethsemane so crushed and overcome with sorrow that he says he doesn't know that he could get up again. Gethsemane takes the God that we needed to be big enough to hold the universe in the span of his hand and makes him small enough and personal enough to place an arm around us when we too are pressed and crushed and to gently whisper to us in that moment that, Trevor, I understand. That, Trevor, I know. That, God, we need to be this big and capable and powerful who now, because of Jesus' story, because of his journey, because he entered that garden and suffered, he now can also slip an arm around me and simply say in those hard moments, I understand. You see, when Jesus came, he was the visible expression of invisible God. That's what's so beautiful about the Gospels, is that when we look at him, we're learning about who God is. 
But when Jesus suffered, he not only paved the way for me to be forgiven and accepted by God, he also proved that he understands me and that he draws near to me in my pain. Gethsemane demonstrates that more clearly than any other place in Scripture. This is this beautiful, eternal story that we've been opening up together where an infinite God became finite so that he could suffer with us and for us. It's the beginning, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Oh, he's, he's taking your mind to three narratives, to Eden, to Israel, and to Rome. To Eden, to tell an eternal story to Israel to tell you that this is a long-anticipated story that the prophets have foretold, and to Rome to tell you the story of a king and a kingdom. That second thing, the anticipated story, think about this with me. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, it means the anointed one. It was something that was said of every one of Israel's kings when they would anoint them with oil at their coronation. But then it became to be known as a title that was waiting for the king who would come to have an eternal reign, for the king who would be the rescuer of God's people. He would be the Messiah, the anointed one. And it's how Mark will describe Jesus again and again as the fulfillment of all that the nation, all that the people of God had long anticipated, all that they had longed for. Now, the baffling thing for us is that they seemed to miss it, didn't they? Like when we went through Mark's gospel, the the people who knew the scriptures most seemed to have the least awareness that Jesus was the one standing in front of them, the fulfillment of all that they'd longed for. I mean, we could look at this and just give a broad sense of how did they miss it, Or we could even just give an individual and and look at a single person in the story who is missing it, someone like Peter. You remember in the moment that Jesus would reveal his true identity to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, where he would ask them, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter will speak up and say, you are the Christ, the Mashiach. You're the one, the one we've waited for, the son of the living God. And Jesus will affirm that, but then instantly tell him, and the Son of Man has come to suffer. In fact, remember he said it, the Son of Man must suffer. Remember in that moment, Peter, so stunned, he rebukes Jesus and says, not so, Lord. Where did Peter get it so wrong? Why did so many other people miss it as well, miss Jesus' identity, and misunderstand how all of this could actually be what the scriptures had foretold? Because what Mark is telling us throughout the story is not just an eternal one, but an anticipated one, that he is the Mashiach, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the Christos. It's probably from a misreading of scripture that they, that they missed it, that they're ignoring prophecies about a suffering servant while embracing prophecies about a king that would come to judge the world and bring justice once and for all. And there's no room for suffering in that vision, nor for death, nor for resurrection. And you remember in the Old Testament, there's really prophetic imagery that creates two different portraits or two different faces, two seemingly dueling identities of the one that they awaited, the promised deliverer to come from heaven, the Messiah because it depicted two different arrivals. They'd hoped for a king who would come as a lion attacking their enemies, but Jesus' first coming would not be as a lion, it would instead be as a lamb. 
And on the day of the triumphal entry, that's how Jesus would enter, with humility, not on a white horse, but lowly, on the back of a donkey, coming as a lamb, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, even coming as a lamb on Passover weekend. And he would strip the enemy of their power, of their crown. He'd remove sin, sickness, suffering, and death once and for all from creation. But the sad reality is not just back in that day that we call Palm Sunday, but even in our own lives personally, is that sometimes we'd rather have a Messiah of our own making than the one that arrived on that day coming down the hill lowly and gentle. It's always a dangerous thing, though, when you pick and choose what you like or are comfortable with in Scripture and allow that to shape your view of God and create your own personal view of Jesus out of that. It's funny, you you look throughout history, even just with art, and when you look at paintings of Jesus, you can guess where the artist was from geographically, what ethnic group he was a part of, because as you look throughout history, the history of the church and art history, Jesus looks like, well, he looks a lot like me if I'm the artist. It's like if you go into uh, an Asian restaurant this afternoon, if you found Uh, an image of Buddha, it's typically shaped by whatever culture or whatever atmosphere that, that it finds itself in. It will look more like that people group with those people, or he'll look more like that people group with those people. The unfortunate thing is that I think for many of us, we're guilty of the same thing, that we fashion Jesus in our own image, that, that if I want to know what Jesus is like, well, just he's a lot like me because he no longer challenges me. He no longer convicts me. He he no longer is unsettling in moments. You see, I think they missed it because they viewed who God would be and what God would do through their own dreams and ambitions, through, through what they desired for themselves. They projected some of those things onto a coming Messiah. And we can do the same thing, project our own hopes and dreams as the will of God for our lives. It's possible in the story we found that it was even true that Jesus was heaven's answer, but was not what humanity was requesting in that moment. He was not what we requested because he wasn't doing things the way that they had hoped. You see, I think that so many people missed it because they had an expectation that Jesus was as concerned with their comfort as they were. And when Jesus came instead to go after a different enemy than the one that they felt was most pressing... They left Jesus, turned their backs, and went from crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify very quickly. See, I think it's it's a convicting and compelling thing that if we want to know if we have the wrong view of Jesus, you'll know it if he looks and thinks and acts just like you. It's Augustine who had said it many, many years ago. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe anymore, it's yourself. My friends, I think the story compels us to be careful to not give up or bail out on Jesus just because we have unmet expectations. Because in our story, when you really think about it, Jesus didn't fall short so much of their expectation. Jesus superseded those expectations by suffering and dying to secure eternal peace. But they needed to allow Jesus to rewrite those expectations. And sometimes for us, when we're in the tension of suffering and waiting for God to respond and asking him where he is, we have to have the humility to allow him sometimes to rewrite some of those expectations. 
Jesus, he remember, he gave us his mission statement in Mark 10, 45, saying that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. That's where he superseded expectation. Remember, a ransom, it, it's speaking of these people who had become slaves, typically through the process of war, when, when they would be captured, they'd, they'd be put out and sold. And, and the only way for a slave to go free is if someone purchased their freedom. And the price was massive for him to redeem us. We weren't purchased with silver or blood or any other corruptible thing. We were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But don't miss this. The price wasn't just the only thing that's important. It's that when a slave is purchased, their status changes. You see, we were taken as slaves but made into sons. We were taken as an outsider but brought in as an insider. From an enemy to an heir to the throne now. To an heir of all that belongs to Christ, that we will, we will be with him now forever. I'm forgiven and washed and rescued and redeemed and will be united with a heavenly father because of the ransom that took place. I'm no longer a slave. It's not just that it cost him so much, but what he did in that moment was change my identity. That's what Christ has done for us at great expense to himself. He ransomed us. Literally, he paid a price to secure our freedom. The gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Mashiach, the son of the living God. It's an eternal story. It was an anticipated story, speaking of the coming Savior, the deliverer that Jesus would be. But it's also the story about a king and his kingdom, the son of God. Remember, the imagery would take the minds of the first century readers to nothing more than Rome itself and Caesar. And there's a contrast that Mark will build between the empire of Rome a suppressive regime, and the movement, the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus. What Mark is claiming here, though, is treason, which is why in the end Jesus will lose his life. It's why in the end the apostles will be martyred. It's why in the end there will be hundreds of thousands, some estimate millions of followers of Jesus that will be put to death under the Roman Empire's rule. But Mark introduces you right at the beginning of the story to the kingdom of Jesus, saying that when Jesus went out preaching the gospel, you remember Mark chapter 1, verse 14, that he went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That Jesus' good news, gospel, euangelion, it's, it's not a churchy term, it's actually a political term. You, you should remember this. That, that political term was something that was saved to be used for special announcements that would change the reality of, of the people who are part of that kingdom. It's for us every four years, we get a new presidential announcement of a new president ruling, uh, leading our country. That's the closest version we have to it. But Jesus, Evangelion, his statement about a gospel was that his kingdom had come. He went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. His goal was not merely to make a way for you or me to be forgiven. His goal was so much bigger than that. He came to redeem and restore all that was lost, that's me and creation around me. Jesus came to take back creation and to, in the same moment, set up his kingdom. Because God wants to restore this world for it once again to reflect his greatness and glory. Which means that the message of Jesus' kingdom is not that everything will be easy, but it is a promise, please hear me, that everything will be made right again. 
to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, it is not a promise that everything is going to be easy, but it is a promise that everything will be right again. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus will give us a look into that right place. He'll give us a glimpse into all that's good that we can expect in his future kingdom. And he'll do that in his teaching and in his miracles. As we've seen, Jesus' teaching was almost exclusively about his kingdom, but also his miracles. His miracles give you a glimpse into that kingdom. Please think about this. It left us with a vision of what the kingdom of God will be like. See, every one of Jesus' miracles happened not just to prove his power or his deity or even his care. It was simultaneously giving you a glimpse into both what he is doing and where he is taking you. He's ushering in a kingdom where he's king over a redeemed and restored people in place, which means that his miracles are not the suspension of the natural order. They are the restoration of the natural order because God never intended and will only briefly allow pain and sickness and suffering and hunger and death and evil which means that each miracle of Jesus then is not just to be read so much as a challenge to your mind. It's meant to be read as a promise to your heart that the world that you and I want is coming. Because he will only briefly allow sin and sickness, suffering and death. Because we believe that there's a place that's coming where every tear is wiped away and every wrong is made right, where every person is healed and made whole, where where the term pandemic is not even a faint, distant memory, where all of these things and these experiences are behind us. We know so little about what heaven will actually be like. We're so very clear, though, on who will be there and what will not be there. We'll be with him And we will no longer be in an experience of a broken creation. It'll be a restored one. You see, this story is about a king and his kingdom. And the message of his kingdom does not merely provide hope for our future. It provides purpose in our present. The kingdom of Jesus, to be a part of it, is not just about hope for future. It's about purpose in the present. Because if the king, if heaven's king is alive in me then I'm not only a member of that kingdom, but I am also the means of the world's experience of that kingdom. The world is meant to get a taste of the kingdom of God through their interaction with heaven's king who now resides in me. We become their glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven will be like in the way that we graciously love and care for them as Jesus has loved and cared for us. Remember, if we truly are a follower of Jesus and a member of his upside-down kingdom, then we'll cherish and value self-sacrifice over self-absorption. We're a part of a different kingdom, so we'll cherish and value meekness and humility over success and superiority. Because we're a part of his kingdom and not just this worldly empire, we'll cherish and value mercy and peace, vulnerability and love over reputation and admiration because we cherish Jesus over ourselves. We don't reside in the kingdom of Jesus, in his upside-down kingdom, simply by choosing to value a system. We reside with him in the kingdom because we choose to value and cherish a person, the person of Jesus. And his cross would be his enthroning moment, the enthronement of a new king, the rightful king over all of the earth. 
where they would mock him and place a royal robe around his shoulders, where they'd beat a crown of thorns into his brow, where they'd write the inscription above his head, this is the king, the king of the Jews. And then they would lift him up, not on a throne, but onto a cross. My friends, it's an amazing thing that all of those storylines intersect in that moment. We're in that moment on a cross. God proves to us once and for all that the fall did not diminish his love for us, but it did make it much more costly. This is Jesus' gospel, his gospel of his kingdom, the beautiful thing that he's doing. Let's end with this thought. My friends, humanity outside the garden, for us today, we live under this suppressive empire of a destructive regime that's built on fear and fueled by shame. But Jesus would come to establish a new regime, a new way of life, a new kingdom, a kingdom of grace and of love. That's what Jesus would establish. One writer, he would define grace this way. He says, grace means we are not held to our worst moment or cursed by our worst decision. Grace is really what Mark finishes with. Yes, I know we talked about it, that it finishes with that statement that the women leave the tomb, Mark 16, verse 8, where they're afraid, they're amazed, dumbfounded. And it pulls you into the tension to ask you to feel it with them and make a choice of what you do with a risen Savior. But you might remember one of the things that that angel said to them at the close of Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, that final statement from the angel was to go tell his disciples and Peter that he's risen from the dead and that they'd see him again in Galilee. Okay, think about this with me. The arrival of his kingdom, the final moment in Mark's gospel, is this beautiful display of grace. Yeah, the final message and example of the grace of Jesus is, is not just because of that final statement, that little mention of Peter. It's part of it. Now, why is that significant? Think with me real quick. Peter is mentioned there by the angel. Peter's the guy who really should get credit for this gospel. You might remember that this is actually the gospel according to Peter. It's written by Mark. That early church history tells us that as Peter traveled from place to place, Mark began to travel with him, hearing the stories that Peter would tell as a firsthand eyewitness of the things that Jesus did, and then that Mark took those stories and wrote out the gospel according to Mark. But this is Peter's story. It's why you don't find a moment in the life of Jesus that's recorded for you in Mark's gospel that Peter was not present for. But in this moment, you hear Peter's heart when he repeats the fact that that angel sent those women to go find Jesus' disciples and specifically Peter. Now, why specifically him? Because he was the one, you might remember, who had denied Jesus publicly. And now Jesus publicly will sit with Peter, you might remember, and have breakfast together where he will publicly restore him and recommission him. Restore him by asking him three times, do you love me? And then recommission him by telling him, then go feed my sheep. He hadn't failed out. There was grace still for Peter. In that final little statement, 
to the women that angel gave, it's this beautiful picture of what the future of the kingdom and movement of the church of Jesus would be in the world. That it would be a place where failures are treated as if they had never failed. That it would be a place where God wouldn't keep score, he'd keep his promises. It'd be a place known by its grace and its love. In fact, it's not just this moment for Peter. It's all the way down to the final dot at the end of Mark 16. Because the man who would leave that final dot at the end of that final sentence and sit back in his chair to recline for a moment is this man, John Mark, a young man. A young man who's first introduced to us in Scripture, well, again and again he's seen as someone who is a deserter, a failure. You see, early church history, they would tell us about John and give us some information about this young man named John Mark. They, they will tell us that the last supper that Jesus would have would be in John Mark's family's home in their upper room. It would explain why then in, in Mark's gospel, there's that cameo appearance where there's a young man who shows up in the garden of Gethsemane wrapped only in a bedsheet. And when they arrest Jesus, you remember he freaks out and starts to run when someone grabs him. The sheet stayed in their hand, but the naked boy ran off into the darkness of the evening. If this is John Mark's home, that that last supper happens, Judas leaves the dinner, comes back with soldiers. They knock on the door. John Mark, alarmed, tells them that he's not here. Judas knows where Jesus often went to pray. John Mark follows them that direction sees the whole thing go down. The one appearance he has in his own gospel is a moment that he's a deserter. Then in the book of Acts, he's seen again. Paul and Barnabas take this young man who wrote this gospel on the first missionary journey. What an honor. Until he called it quits and went home. Overwhelmed, something happened. We don't know. We just know that he left. And in the future, when he was determined, I'm going to try this again, one of them, Barnabas, said, yeah, let's do it. And Paul said, there's no way. Not a chance. The deserter, the failure. And yet by the end of Paul's life, he references this guy, John Mark, as someone who was useful for him and someone in the last thing that Paul would pen before he would be beheaded in Rome. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he would say that he was useful for me and wanted him to be with him. The imagery all the way down to the final period as Mark would have breathed a deep breath and finished this account written by his own hand is an expression of God's grace for failures. Is an expression of God willingly treating failures as if they'd never failed, being associated with failures intentionally, of the kingdom of Jesus being a grace-filled place for us to find ourselves of the church and future of his work in the world being a gift and expression of his love and grace. There is grace for failures in Jesus' kingdom. He treated failures as if they had never failed. God welcomes sinners as sons because his son would endure the judgment and punishment that sinners had earned and deserved. Oh, the beautiful portrait that God has painted for us of himself when he came and lived among us in the person of Jesus. And what a gift and account like Mark's gospel is for us to see that the one that we turn to, that we turn to him in confidence, with full confidence that he's the friend of sinners. My friends, there's grace in Jesus. 
There's a gracious embrace to be found in him even today, even if you failed again and again and again. Go to Jesus, the friend of sinners. Father, I thank you so much for the gift that it's been for us as a church to have this story, the account of your life, Jesus, preserved for us 2,000 years later. And for us to be able to collectively together take the time, Jesus, to open up these moments and stories and to see you with clarity. And God, we're thankful for the confidence we have in your power. So very thankful, thankful also, though, for our confidence we have in your compassion and in your love and in your grace. Father, we're so thankful for the gift you gave us in Jesus. And so thankful that, Jesus, we can be a part of your kingdom, both in the future and in the present. And so, God, we, we thank you today for the gift of your son and the gift that we have enjoyed in this last year together as a church of looking the direction of your son through the faithful records of Peter and of Mark. God, we thank you, and we worship you with confidence, knowing who you are, because we've seen you so closely. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, we made it. It took over 50 times of being together, but we've officially wrapped up our time in Mark's gospel. It means so much that you joined us on this journey, so if you haven't done so yet, Introduce yourself today and let us know that you've been with us. Take a moment and send an email to office at olivebranchcf.org. Thanks so much for being with us. God bless you.